avoiding temptation number two, we're going to uh, finish up from last week, and uh, I'm going to read from Matthew 26, starting at verse 36. Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane and said to the disciples, sit over here while I go over, pray over there. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, and he began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. And he said to them, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to the death. Stay here and watch with me. And he went a little farther and fell on his face and prayed, Oh, Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Then he came to the disciples and found them sleeping and said to Peter, What? Could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, a second time he went away and prayed and saying, O oh, my father, if this cup cannot pass away from me unless I drink it, your will be done. And he came and found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went again away and prayed the third time, saying the same words. And he came to his disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Behold, the hour is at hand. The Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. We'll stop there. We're in the midst of our uh, discussion of avoiding temptation, and we've come to... Uh, under a major point, this is number three, and I may have begun this, but we'll, we'll continue this, and then we're going to go uh, keep on praying. We must be on guard against the first motions and movements of temptations and sin within us the moment they appear. You don't play with it, you don't toy with it, you don't contemplate it, you get rid of it. The longer a believer waits to deal with temptation or lust, the more likely that that believer is going to fall into sin. If you fail to deal with it at that stage, right away, it will overcome you. Nip it in the bud. Deal with it at once. Never let it even get a moment's foothold. Do not accept it at all. Don't toy with it. Don't play with it. Perhaps feel, feel inclined to say, oh, well, I'm going to do this thing. Uh, but if you accept it in your mind and began to fondle it there and play with it and entertain it in your imagination, you are already on the road to defeat. So you have to nip it in the bud immediately. If we play with lusts in our mind, contemplate the pleasures of sin, and start debating whether or not to commit the act itself in our spirit, then we've lost the battle. Not only have we begun to sin in our heart, but we have purposely placed ourselves with where the outward act itself is almost inevitable. And here's the best example about this. Think about David, King David, for a while. David goes up on his roof. Now, back then they had, uh, the houses all had flat roofs, and, and people would entertain on the roofs. David, of course, had the nicest house in the neighborhood. He had a palace, so he could look down on the other roofs. <clears throat> he goes up to relax, and he sees a beautiful woman taking a bath. And when women take baths, they generally are naked. King David had the biggest house in the neighborhood. He had the best view. Did he know that it was sinful to watch another man's wife, a godly man? taking a bath and to sit there and stare at her? Did he know that was wrong? Yeah, he did. Did David then go immediately back into his house to avoid this uh, passion-inflaming sight? And the answer is no. The king stayed on the roof 
and he stared and he fantasized and he planned a course for adultery and eventual disaster he liked what he saw he sat there and stared he didn't nip it in the butt at all he played with it he toyed with it and what happened was he came up with a premeditated plan to commit adultery the moment that he saw Bathsheba he entered into temptation and he should have fled for his spiritual life but he did not. This failure to deal with the first motions of temptation scarred him the rest of his life. And we know the whole sad story, the tragic story. He commits adultery. She gets pregnant. And then he deliberately gets her husband killed, which is murder, to cover it up. And then, of course, he's judged. Now, by way of example, let us contrast what David did with that of Joseph. Very different reactions. In Genesis 39, we read about the hot pursuit of Joseph by Potiphar's wife. She had a crush on Joseph. She wanted him. In verse 9, Joseph uh, emphatically tells this wicked woman, how can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Then in verses 11 and 12, we read how she uh, springs her trap and Joseph enters into temptation. The husband's gone. He's not going to be home for a long time. This is her opportunity to get Joseph... Now, she's a pagan. This is her opportunity to get Joseph to sin. Notice the response. Now, it happened about this time when Joseph went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the house was inside, that she caught him by his garment saying, Lie with me. Pretty direct. But he left his garment in her hand, and he fled and ran outside. Unlike David, Joseph was on the alert for that first entering into temptation, for that first motion of temptation. He was prepared for battle. He was spiritually minded. And he had already thought in his head, he already premeditated in his head, what would I do in this situation? How would I handle this? How could I avoid entering into temptation and committing sin? He was prepared for battle, and he knew what to do immediately. He didn't even have time to think about the matter. He was out the door in a split second. Now, when you get in your car, let's say you drive a stick shift. You can drive around, you can listen to the radio and sing along with the radio, and you're shifting and you're putting on your brakes and you're driving effectively. You don't even have to think about it. Because you've done it so many times, it becomes a habit. You don't think about your shifting and this and that. It's almost automatic. And that's the way you want to be about temptations. What am I going to do in this temptation? Are you going to be like David? Or are you going to be like Joseph? We know what happened to David. Did he have fun? Did he have pleasure? Yeah, he did. And he received a curse for it, and he received judgment for it. And we know the sad story of that. Another destructive contrast between entertain, uh, entertaining temptation and immediately quenching it can be seen in the examples of Eve and Christ. And of course, we know that Christ as a second Adam was tempted way beyond what Adam and Eve were. When Eve was tempted by the devil, she debated within herself 
on the reasonableness of Satan's word versus God's word. She toyed with the temptation. She took it in her heart and she coddled it. Well, yeah, let's see, God has said this, but the fruit's really nice. It's pleasing to the eyes. It looks healthy. It looks good. Maybe I should trust empiricism. Maybe I should trust my own eyes and not trust God's word. She toyed with it. And the result was sin and the fall of mankind. You see, Satan defeated her first within herself, within her mind and heart. Now, Jesus, on the other hand, was alert to the danger of temptation. He was prepared for it, and he abruptly conquered it. Whenever Satan tempted Christ by challenging Scripture, the Savior always immediately responded with an emphatic, it is written. Literally, it stands written. Uh, Matthew 4, 4 and 7 and verse 10, Luke 4, 4 and 8 and 12. And then finally, get thee hence, Satan, Matthew 4, 10. He had an immediate response. Automatic premeditated, planned. He knew what to do. Now, why is stopping temptation the moment that it appears so important? Because even though at one time or another all men will be affected by strong temptation, the giving into temptation always begins in the mind. The mind is always the first battlefield in our front confrontation with sin. And any of you who watch crime shows, you know, about murder and adultery and these things, there's a lot of premeditation that goes into effect. People determine what they want to do in their mind and then they carry it out. The sin begins in the heart and then it goes to the hand or the mouth. Therefore, we must be aware of this fact to prepare our defenses ahead of time. <clears throat> we must not be caught off guard as if God has not warned us repeatedly about this matter. That's why scripture has so many examples. Remember, Satan and the forbidden fruit did not force Eve to commit sin. She dialogued with the tempter. She placed Satan's word and God's word on the same platform as, and treated them as they both had the same authority. And they were both the same as, as far as trustworthiness goes. She placed empiricism and autonomous human reason above the word of God. She had actually sinned in her heart before she even tasted the fruit. She dialogued with the tempter. She rationalized her lust. She contemplated the benefits of sin. And she made excuses for it. And she consented to it in her mind before she ate the fruit. She did not contemplate the consequences of sin. She contemplated the benefits of sin, the pleasures of sin. Oh, it sure looks good. That fruit looks great. Eve, go ahead and eat the fruit. You can determine for yourself what is right and what is wrong. Don't let God tell you what to do. She chose, philosophically, she chose Nietzsche over Christ. And then further, giving into temptation and committing sin can have disastrous spiritual consequences that we do not yet comprehend. Some historians say that it was the careless use of a lamp while milking a cow 
that caused the Great Chicago Fire that destroyed Chicago. That's, of course, before our time, the 1800s. Entering temptation and giving into what may be considered a small sin often becomes the spark that snares a great conflagration in the life of that person. David's pornographic sightseeing led to adultery. Adultery led to murder. And of course, the death of the child, his child, and a family history of rebellion and heartache. He paid for that for years. Sin is uh, maybe sweet to the taste, but it's very bitter in the stomach. And there's never, sin never pays. You know, they say crime never pays. Well, sin never pays. And people who sin, and you look at, you know, pagan fools who sin all the time, it's, it's, a, it's a moment of pleasure. It's, it's, it's a sacrificing your future for the present pleasure. An angry word or two spoken in haste has led to murder, wars, and the downfall of empires. Here's what Plummer says. If we see the end of a thing, we cannot tell whether it is to be great or small in its effects. Our greatest rivers have their rise in little springs, whose streams are often buried under leaves and shrubs. The causes now at work in forming men's character seem contemptible to many, but a leak though not larger than a rice straw, may sooner or later sink a ship. The smallest opening made by a mole on the bank of a canal will of itself grow to waste, to a waste of all its waters. One weak link in a chain, cable, causes the vessel to drift on the rocks. A scratch has brought inflammable inflammation that ended in death, the glance of the eye that caused crimes that will not be forgotten while eternity endures. End of quote. Remember, the strength of a rope is always indicated by its weakest point. The same goes for a chain. The importance of stopping the first movements of temptation and sin, the moment they appear, cannot be overemphasized. We must deal with temptation and sin the moment they land on the shore of our hearts before they have time to bring in reinforcements. And the longer we wait, the stronger our enemy will become. Number four. We must watch against lukewarmness in our hearts towards our spiritual walk with Christ. The strength of Christians, which is observed in the actions of the principle of grace and holiness in believers, is subject unto various kinds of decay. And the sad reality can be seen in Jesus' admonition to Sardis. Revelation 3, 2-3, to Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die. For I have not found your works perfect before God. Remember, therefore, how you, uh, how you have received and heard. Hold fast and repent. Therefore, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief. And you will not know the hour I will come upon you. Sardis was built on a mountain. And an Acropolis was constructed on the spur of this mountain, which was all but impregnable. Yet twice in the city's history it had been taken unawares and captured by enemies. The parallel with the church's lack of vigilance and its need to wake up, lest it fall under judgment, is striking. 
these people that get careless. Oh, I'm not going to sin. I've been a Christian this many years. I'm solid. You can depend on me. And then they put themselves in a situation of temptation and they fall. Don't be an idiot. Watchfulness then not refers not merely to the alertness to the dangers of inward lusts and outward circumstances of temptation, but also to our own spiritual state itself. If we do not strengthen our spiritual state and remember the blessed gospel and the means of grace, we, like Sardis, will be conquered. Watchfulness against entering temptation involves a daily assessment of our own spiritual growth and strength. And obviously, know your weak areas. We've discussed this before. What are your weak areas? Those are the areas you have to be extra careful. If you're tempted to get drunk, or if you used to be a pothead and you're tempted to smoke pot, it's all around now. It's legal in many states. It'll probably be legal nationally. Or if you have a problem with the ladies or the lusts, you have to be on a special guard against your weaknesses. What are we to do when we detect our love, fervor, and diligence toward Christ and his causes? Not what it once was. Well, we must cultivate all the means of grace and especially prayer. There is a reason that watchfulness and prayer are companions. In times of weakness, temptation, and backsliding, we must renew our strength. And here's what Isaiah says, Isaiah 40, 29, and 31. He gives power to the weak. And to those who have no might, he increases strength. Those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They will walk and not faint. You've got to ask God for help. You've got to ask God for help. And you've got to do it diligently. God will take us from the death of our weaknesses, our grief, and difficulties, and will cause us to soar on high. But we have to be diligent. You have to know the Word of God, obviously. You have to know what sin is. What's so scary about so many professing Christians today is they, their lack of knowledge of scriptures is so horrible. Their lack of knowledge of the moral law of God is that many practices are just simply accepted today as totally normal. And if you, th if you don't know something's a sin, how are you going to be convicted and repent? Fornication is widespread. It's very acceptable in evangelical circles. Fornication, premarital sex. Totally acceptable in many churches. Now, if you ask the pastor, does he approve of that? He'd probably say no. But a lot of young people think, hey, what's the big deal? What's the big deal? In our study of watchfulness, we have learned that spiritual alertness first involves being on guard against entering temptation itself. If we are to fear and avoid evil, we must begin with the door to sin, which is temptation. We must do everything in our power to avoid it, prepare for it, anticipate it. This involves a careful, continuous examination of our own hearts, in light of the Word of God, obviously, weaknesses, environment, and every occasion that may lead us into temptation. We must be on guard against the first motions of temptation as well. We need to stop the enemy on the beaches before he can break out and build up forces. And this involves a thorough knowledge of Scripture and anticipating various circumstances of temptation. In warfare, the best place to stop an army is either when they're getting on the beach 
or when they're trying to cross a river. You hammer them. And of course, Ukraine did that a few weeks back where they destroyed a whole group of Russians crossing a river. They, they got caught red-handed with artillery. That's the best place to do it. Once they get, once the U.S. lands on Normandy and uh, they've got 300,000 troops ashore and a bunch of equipment, uh, it's over. So, beloved, watch that you do not grieve the Spirit of God. Watch so that you will persevere in holiness. Watch so that you will not bring reproach upon the name of Christ. Watch so that the church of God should not be put to an open shame. And watch so that you will adorn the Savior's gospel and win jewels for the resurrected king's crown. And then we come to our second major point, which is keep on praying. Christ puts them together. In our text, watching is only half the equation. The other half is uh, that we are to continually pray. And there are two, these two must always be together, for we can only be protected and preserved by the power of God. Like when you study the Bible, what do you do before you study the Bible? Lord, open my eyes to understand what's here. Illuminate my mind. Give me understanding. Well, there are a number of things regarding prayers for deliverance from temptation. Number one, the prayer for deliverance is a prayer of humility. It is an acknowledgement that there are trials, sufferings, and temptations that are beyond our present ability to handle. Pride goes before a fall. Humility says, I don't trust myself. I need to depend on God to help me. When we pray for deliverance uh, from temptations, we are acknowledging that we are weak, feeble, untrustworthy, why God is sovereign, powerful, and faithful. Lord, help me. We are to pray, save me, O Lord, from such a trial and suffering as may lead me into sin. We know from Scripture that Satan, in various circumstances in life, can go no further in tempting than God allows. We see this very explicitly in the case of Job. He is sovereign. Thomas Watson says this, which is excellent. A whole legion of devils could not touch one swine till Christ gave them leave. Satan would have sifted Peter till he sifted out all grace, but Christ would not suffer him. I have prayed thee, etc. Christ binds the devil in a chain, Revelation 20. If Satan's power were according to his malice, not one soul could be saved. But he is chained, a chained enemy. End of quote. Now, therefore, in our prayer for deliverance from temptation, we must ask God to remove providential conditions that would lead us into temptation. You obviously avoid those situations as best you can, but in a world where you've got a job and you're working around a bunch of pagans and you know beautiful young ladies and stuff, if, you know, if you're young and handsome and stuff, you're going to have those situations arise. We see this type of petition in the words of Augur, the son of Jacob. And this is from Proverbs 37 to 9. Two things I request of you. Deprive me not before I die. Remove falsehood and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with a food allotted to me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. If we are placed in a situation of poverty or financial crisis, and that happens to the best of Christians, we may be tempted to compromise biblical ethics by taking an unethical job. 
that uses deception and fraud in its business practices. Many sales jobs are founded upon distortion, exaggeration, and blatant deception. We may be tempted to cut corners and give people less than they expect in order to make a living. And this is the practice of a number of contractors. They promise one thing and do another. I'll give your house two coats of paint. They give it one and walk away. How is the people going to tell if they were, unless they were out there watching? And we may even be tempted to break the Sabbath. In third world countries where real poverty exists, de deprivation often leads to theft, the dealing of drugs and prostitution. Thus we pray, Lord, lead us not into the temptation of poverty. Dealing drugs is a, a way, a, a very easy way. Now, it's, it can be dangerous, but it's a very easy way to make a lot of money. Increasingly, auger also prays against the temptation associated with being rich. Interestingly, I doubt that there are many Christians in this country that pray such a prayer. Yet there are many temptations that can come with being rich. We all know the debauchery and destruction that very often clings to the rich and famous in Hollywood. And many of us have often heard the sad stories of people whose ethical and family lives were turned upside down by winning the lottery. How many people, when they become rich and famous, the first thing they do is they get rid of their wives. They get rid of their families and find somebody young and beautiful, or younger and more beautiful. Happens all the time. Rich people think, you know, they're, they're so happy and satisfied, and they, everything is taken care of, and people look up to them, they don't see any need to look to God. They think everything's fine. There's a reason that Jesus said, Matthew 19, 23 to 24, Assuredly I say to you that it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And again I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Both scripture and history teach us that prosperity, honor, material things, and luxuries often lead to carelessness regarding spiritual things, worldliness, forgetfulness of God, a reliance on our own strength and self-conceit. I always think of this guy I knew when I was going to seminary. We went to the same church. And uh, he really liked the ladies. And what did he do? He wanted more money. So he went out and got a job and dropped out of seminary so he could buy a Corvette because he said it would help him meet ladies. And uh, he left the ministry behind, and he became very worldly. Not a good idea. Not a good idea. Our Lord spoke of those who hear the word of God. This is from Matthew 13, 22. But the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and they become unfruitful. O Lord, deliver us from the temptations associated with being rich. Material possessions and money and all those things should not be a top priority. You don't need a, a $10,000 vacation every year. You don't need to buy a new car every three years. You don't need to buy a 3,000 square foot house when you have two kids. You don't need a lot of things. Be satisfied with less so you have more time for spiritual things. Biblical prayer is based on a humble acknowledgement that we are saved and sanctified by Christ alone and that we are totally dependent on the efficacy of Christ's redemptive work for progress and holiness. Prayer is crucial because keeping and preserving ourselves from sin is not within our own power. We are dependent on our union with the Savior, the intercession of Christ, and the assistance of the Holy Spirit at all times. 
Peter says, 1 Peter 1, 5, that Christians are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. We must pray that the Lord will deliver us from every evil work and preserve us for his heavenly kingdom. 2 Timothy 4.18 Like David before us, we must cry, Create me a clean heart, O God! Proverbs 51.11 And look to him, the author and finisher of our faith, Hebrews 12.2 To call upon God is the chief exercise of faith and hope, and it is in this way that we obtain from God every blessing. You attend all the means of grace, you study the word diligently, you know the word, you know ethics, and you pray for God to illuminate your mind and God to bend your heart, to convict you of sin, to cause you to hate sin, to cause you to want to follow Christ more faithfully. Here's what John Calvin says. This is from his Institutes of the Christian Religion. Words fail to express how necessary prayer is and in how many ways the exercise of prayer is profitable. Surely with good reason the Heavenly Father affirms that the only stronghold of safety is in calling upon his name. See Joel 2.32. By so doing, we involve, invoke the presence of both of his providence, though, through which he watches over and guards our affairs, and of his power, through which he sustains us, weak as we are, and well nigh overcome, and of his goodness, through which he receives us, miserably burdened with sins unto grace. And in short, it is by prayer that we, that we call him to reveal himself as wholly present to us. Hence, comes an extraordinary peace in response of our, to our consciences. For having disclosed to the Lord the necessity that he has pressed upon us, we even rest fully in the thought that none of our ill is hid from him, who we are convinced has both the will and the power to take the best care of us. End of quote. What a great quote. Calvin was great on that topic. What comfort. It's a religion of humility, Christianity. We know that we're not saved by our own works. We know that we're not saved because we're good. We know that we're not saved because of our own power. We're totally dependent on Christ for everything. Without me, he said, you can do nothing. Lord, help me. Protect me from evil. Protect me from Satan. Keep me from temptation, from entering into temptation. And when I do enter temptation, give me the power and the ability to overcome it, to flee it to be biblical in our, my thinking, to be biblical and put Christ first in everything. And then number two, prayers for divine intervention regarding temptation must be accompanied by faith or a hearty trust in God and his word. Jesus said, Mark eleven twenty four. Therefore I say to you, whatever things you ask when you pray, believe that you, receive, you will receive them and you will have them. Matthew 21, 22. And whatever things you ask in prayer, believing you will receive. And James concurs, this is from uh, James 1, 5 to 7. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith and not no, with no doubting. For he who doubts is like a, a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. And the author of Hebrews says this, Hebrews eleven six. But without faith it is impossible to please him, for he who comes to him must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Calvin says, quote, If we would pray fruitfully, we ought therefore to grasp with both hands this assurance of obtaining what we ask, which the Lord enjoins with his own voice, and all the saints teach by their example. For only that prayer is acceptable to God which is born, if we so may express it, out of such presumption of faith, and is grounded in an unshaken assurance of hope. End of quote. 
And therefore, with the psalmist, we should say, Psalm 56, 9 and 11, When I cry out to you, then my en- uh, when I cry out to you, then my enemies will turn back. This I know because God is with me. God is for me. In God I will put my trust. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? We have God on our side. We have Jesus Christ interceding for us 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Why doubt? Why are you doubting? Why are you refusing to pray when you should have faith? You say, well, I'm a rotten sinner. I did this and I did that. Well, that means you should pray even more, not less. Don't doubt. Pray. God tells us to pray. When we speak of faith, we do not mean a faith in faith itself. We mean a belief in and a hearty trust in God and His infallible word. When we pray for relief from temptation, we must trust in God's loving, trustworthy, righteous character. God is faithful. Jehovah is a covenant-keeping God. He's not like us. God himself forced wicked Balaam to say, Numbers 23, 28, God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. And Jesus promised him, promised us, Hebrews 13, 5, and see Joshua 1, 5, I will never leave you nor forsake you. John 10, 27 to 28, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and I, they follow me, and I give them eternal life. And they shall never perish, neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. Don't doubt. Don't go into despair. Don't listen to the devil and give up hope. Get on your knees and pray. God is faithful. God is sovereign. Do you believe his promises? Do you treat God as unfaithful by acting as though these promises are not true? God forbid. God has repeatedly and emphatically stated his faithfulness to us so we should trust and lay all our cares before him. Note Paul's trust in the faithfulness of God in his prayer for the Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians 5, 23-24. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit, body, and soul be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful who also will do it. He will do it. God preserves his elect under the day of redemption. They do not fall away. They do not apostatize. And we should pray for that every day. Open my eyes to your word, your truth. Bend my heart to love your law. Cause me to submit to your will. We must also look to God's word, which has specific promises regarding deliverance from temptation. For example, Paul says, 1 Corinthians 10.13, No temptation has overtaken you except such as common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation will also make the way of escape, that you will be able to bear it. What a blessed promise that is. It's amazing. God does not merely say, It, uh, a way of escape in some random fashion, but by divine arrangement, the way of escape. It's very specific. God's faithfulness to his people is perfect, even though our faithfulness to him is very imperfect. If we are to pray in faith, Romans 10, 14, and faith respects God's promises, Hebrews 4, 1 and Romans 4, then we must lay hold of these precious promises and use them in our prayers against temptation. You want to learn how to pray? You better know the scriptures. You better know the character of God. You better know what God says about himself. You better know what God's will is. Then you'll know what to pray. If you don't know scripture, then your prayers are going to be carnal and worldly and foolish and stupid. 
The use of God's promises relating to temptation is further strengthened by another promise. John says this, <coughs> and this is uh, 1 John 5, 14 to 15. Now, this is the confidence that we have in him. If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we asked of him. Now, how do you know you're praying according to God's will? Well, you've got to pray according to what the scripture says is God's preceptive will. What does God want you to do? What does God want you to do ethically? What does God want you to do to be covenantly faithful? What does God want you to do to grow in grace and the knowledge of Christ? These are the things you pray for. And you know that that's praying according to God's will. Now, obviously, there are things that are not in the preceptive will of God that God may not answer your prayer. You may have cancer. You may die of cancer. But you still pray for that. But things that we know are according to his will, such as growing in grace and knowledge of Christ and so forth, these are things we can pray for with complete confidence. If we are not acquainted with God's promises because we do not read and commit scripture to memory, and if we neglect to stand on these promises when we pray, then we are guilty of going into battle without the armor that God has so graciously, graciously given us. Arthur Pink says this, he notes that God requires our concurrence and cooperation, not to assist him, but for the discharge of our responsibility, and especially for the calling into exercises of the spiritual graces which he has imparted to his children. We must ask if we would receive, and we must ask expectantly, for according to our faith will it be unto us. In answering to importunate, that is urgent prayer, God gives of his best to us. David was in sore straits, but he knew where to turn for relief. And the day when I cried, thou answerest me and straightenest me with the strength in my soul. Strengthenest me with strength in my soul. Psalm 138, verse 3. That's from his gleanings from Paul on prayer. <clears throat> a prayer for the increase of faith also must include a petition for increased faith in the efficacy of the Savior's redemptive work regarding our sanctification. Paul, when he discusses sanctification, for example, Romans chapter 6, there's a whole bunch of stuff in there about faith and trusting in the efficacy of Jesus' death and resurrection. You died unto sin. You've risen unto life. You've died to that old life. You've risen to a new life. You have to live in terms of what you are in Christ. Believers are frequently taught about the necessity of faith for justification, but rarely about the relationship of faith to sanctification. When Paul discusses our need for godliness, he always roots our holiness in Jesus' redemptive work in history. The Apostle teaches that when our Lord died on the cross, we, by virtue of our union with him, also died to the reigning, enslaving, defiling power of sin. Romans 6, 1 to Romans 7, 6. Further, when Christ rose from the dead, we rose to a new life of holiness. John 17, 17, 1 Corinthians 1, 30-31 and 6, 11. Ephesians 2, 1-7, 5, 25-27, Titus 13-14, Hebrews 13, 12, etc. On this basis, Paul says, Romans 6, 11, Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Yeah, this is what you used to be. This is what you used to be. But you died with Christ. When he died, you died. When he rose, you rose. 
You're not that same person. All, you've been born again. All things are past. Behold, all things have become new in Christ. Live in terms of that. The Apostle says that as partakers with the Savior, we must maintain a full conviction of who we really are in Him. We must have a living, vibrant faith in this historic, salvific reality, and we must constantly live in terms of it. We must keep our eyes focused on Christ in order to present our bodies as living sacrifices unto God. Jesus and His blessed work are the foundation on which our victory over sin rests. A continuous walking in sin is rendered impossible by the bloody cross and the empty tomb. That believers are in principle dead to sin and alive to Christ must become the abiding conviction of our hearts and minds, the takeoff point for all of our thinking, planning and rejoicing, speaking and doing. We must constantly bear in mind that we are no longer what we used to be. Our lives from day to day must show that we have not forgotten this, that we're keeping our minds the eye of faith upon this great truth. The volume one of our lives is closed. We are now living in volume two. <coughs> if we coddle temptations and we give in to sin, then we're living inconsistently with who we are in Christ. Given all this, we must pray and study God's word to cultivate our faith in Christ. So the major secret of holy living is in the mind. We're to recall, to ponder, to grasp, to meditate upon, to register these truths until they are totally integral to our mindset that a return to the old life is simply unthinkable. It's unthinkable. And when the Christian does sin, the true Christian, he will be convicted. He will sincerely repent. David certainly did. It took him a while, but he did. But what are we to do if we find ourselves in a situation of temptation? We must pray and lay hold of the promise that the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations. 2 Peter 2.9 Temptation should quicken a spirit of prayer in us. When Paul had a messenger of Satan to buffet him, he was more earnest in prayer. For this I besought the Lord thrice. 2 Corinthians 12.8 The thorn in his flesh was a spur in his side to quicken him in prayer. The deer went shot with an arrow runs faster to the water. So the soul that is shot with the fiery darts of temptation runs faster to the thrones of grace, the throne of grace, and is earnest with God either to take off the temper or to stand by him when he is tempted. If we are serious about holiness, the temptations and trials that buffet us should bring us closer to Christ and should be providential means of increasing our sanctification. 1 Peter 5, 6-7 Therefore humble your souls under the mighty hand of God that we may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. And we'll end there. <clears throat> uh, this is very simple stuff, but it's so often neglected. You know the scriptures. You study the scriptures. Your eye is focused on Christ. Your eye is focused on the efficacy of his redemptive work. You're also focused on the law of God and the moral requirements of Scripture. How are we thus to live? And therefore, when temptations come, you know how you're supposed to think and you know how you're supposed to respond. And you have to obey. Trust and obey is the theme of the five books of Moses. 
They're the theme of the scriptures, really. Trust in Christ and obey. But we'll stop there and let us pray. Father, we thank you so much for your incredible word. Oh, we're so neglectful. We're so neglectful of these great truths. Open our eyes to understand them. Bend our hearts to obey them. Let us be diligent, always. And when we do sin, let us immediately repent and put to death the sinful flesh, the old man, <clears throat> that we may be obedient covenant keepers in your glorious kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs>